Hello, heroes. Welcome to Modifier. I'm your host, Megan Dornbrock. Hi there, heroes. It's mid-July, which means Gen Con is almost upon us. If you're going, I hope you'll make it to our network panel on Saturday evening at 6.30. We don't really have plans for a meetup this year, so the panel is going to be the best way to say hi to everybody. I'll also be doing a panel on Friday at 2 p.m. with Allie and Drew from Welcome to War to Podcast and Twitch Stream, all about the mechanics of actual play storytelling, stuff like choosing your system or building a system, basically making it work for you. Also, if you've signed up for either of the games I'm running, and that's the Not-So-Dark Fantasy Golden Sky Age or Dragon Age World Return of the Grey Wardens, please feel free to reach out to me on Twitter or email if you have any accessibility concerns or really any concerns, and we'll work that stuff out the best we can ahead of time. Lastly, it's been a little while since I talked about the OneShot Network Patreon, and it feels especially important to plug that again as it's the reason I'm even able to make it to Gen Con this year. It's a tough trip, and it's a little far for me, so having that help with badge and board makes it a much more doable convention. The Patreon also does little things for me every day, like keep my show hosted for you to access. And I've been slacking a bit on the modifier secret content for backers only, but I'm working on some treats for you all very soon. Please consider checking it out. Even a dollar every month helps us do so much. Okay, this week I talked to James Isles about his game Legacy. Legacy is a Powered by the Apocalypse game about, well, the legacy of a family rebuilding their world over generations explored from both the macro family level and the micro individual character level. We talked a lot about James's approach to games, the journey of redesigning Legacy, and the amazing new perspectives other writers have brought to this concept. James was a delight to chat with, and I hope you enjoy this one too. Let's get to the show. Okay, heroes, this week I am joined by James Isles, and we're going to talk about his game Legacy. Hey, James. Hello. Happy to be here. Yay, I'm so glad to have you here. Um, would you like to introduce yourself a little bit, some projects you've worked on or places people might know you from? Yeah, certainly. So as far as RPG design goes, Legacy is my big thing. I kickstarted the first edition about four years ago now. Um hmm. And that was me sort of really getting uh, my feet wet with Apocalypse World stuff. Before that, the only uh, game design stuff I had done was uh, LARP-based, building, you know, mm. big sort of free-form LARPs for, well, I say big, about like 30 person or so, that we that we ran at my university uh, society over the course of a year. We had this um, really great structure where every year a um, new crop of GMs would be elected from the uh, student body and they would design a new system and run it and that's where I really sort of got my start game designing but yeah so Legacy is a apocalypse world powered game but and it's similarly post-apocalyptic but it's all about um, what happens after the apocalypse about communities and rebuilding. Very cool. Oh man I'm so curious about college LARPs now that sounds great. I'm happy to talk about it. (laughs) Yeah. Um, no, just thinking if each year you have new GMs, like how wildly different the games must be from year to year. Yeah. That's pretty interesting. So the year I joined university, it was a game called Albion, which was set during the sort of Tudor period. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, angels and demons had been brought back into the world and the world had flooded. 
And um, I played a inventor in that. Um, I think my high point was helping lead an expedition to the um, City of Gold in South America, which mm-hmm. where we angered the gods and the sun went out. So I had to build fake suns to float over South America so they didn't starve to death. Um, oh, my God. So the game I made with a bunch of people after that uh, was uh, Broken Worlds, where you were in floating fragments um, it, between a uh, misty void beneath and storm clouds above. And that was all about what society builds from these things. Mm. And we've had one set inside a corporation that was very sort of better off Ted E. Uh, nice. superheroes we've had uh you know secret magicians in the modern world yeah. the one that they're currently running is set in renaissance europe where portals have appeared in the sky and aliens have started invading oh, good. the worlds in the borgias sort of period oh my gosh that's that's excellent so you you did LARPs then before you did tabletop how how did you get sold on LARP i'm so curious um so i'd always wanted to play D&D as a kid but that was mostly because that was mm-hmm. all I knew and I could never really get anyone together to play it and you mm-hmm. know I come to university and I go to the um freshers fair where all the clubs are pitching their thing and I find the role-playing game society and I ask you know do you play D&D and I'm like eh, mm-hmm. some of us maybe <laughs> but mostly we do this and they hand me a flower with like lots of photos of them running around in the woods hitting each other with sticks or standing around in a room and talking to each other and you know it's a very sort of was a friendly pitch. I mean, I was somewhat scared of the whole uh, costume thing, but then they provide most of that. And yeah, so mostly it was a great way to meet people and who then get involved in playing tabletop with them. And as it turns out, then I sat down to play D&D a few times and it uh, wasn't really what I was looking for. Yeah. So yeah, it took me a while to find systems that actually clicked for me and eventually ended up designing them. Excellent. And it sounds like that that journey of finding the right system kind of brought you to Apocalypse World. Yeah. Very, very interesting. Was Legacy, so working on Legacy, did you know that you wanted to make a Powered by the Apocalypse game and then that became Legacy? Or did you have this idea for Legacy and like Apocalypse World fit? Or how did that work? So for a while, I'd been wanting to make something about that weird post-apocalyptic feeling because, you know, I'm a big nerd for it. I love things like uh, Mad Max (laughs) and that. And, uh, mm-hmm. well, actually, one of my big um, introductions into tabletop role-playing was a campaign of uh, Tribe 8, which is a, a mm-hmm. Canadian post-apocalyptic spiritualist role-playing game from the 90s. It's a very sort of meta-plot-heavy sort of thing. It, it's very, very 90s. I wouldn't really go back to it. But um, <laughs> it got this sort of feeling of not just sort of post-apocalypse and sense of sort of scrabbling around ruined buildings, but... The world has fundamentally changed and people are fundamentally changing with it. And mm-hmm. so, you know, I'd been playing this and I'd wanted to make something along those lines. And at the same time, this was just after Dungeon World had been kickstarted and I'd been Ooh, running yeah. a series of sort of one-shot adventures for um, friends and for the uh, role-playing society in general with that. And I just, you know, fell in love with the whole paradigm of making rules for that saying you know if you want something to happen in a particular story you know if your genre means that when this happens this happens you can just write that as a rule you don't need to tweak the dice math so that something that you want to happen generally happens you can just say when x happens y happens that's great and so this was all boiling together in my mind 
And then someone on one of the forums I frequent uh, put together a um, apocalypse world powered um, design challenge for a month. So cool. You know, it's like the first week you could submit your pitches. By the second week, you should have your playbooks. By the third week, you should have playbooks written out. And fourth week, everything. Uh, so cool. in that really sort of focused blitz environment, I put together the first edition of Legacy <laughs> and uh, came second in that. Oh, nice. Yeah, which won me a uh, $30 voucher for drive through RPG. Hey, yeah. you can get a whole game with that. That's awesome. Well, what I got with that was <laughs> stock art. Oh, good. And got that to put together a version of Legacy that looked a little bit better, a little bit more something I'd be happy to give out to a broader audience. So yeah. I then put into public playtesting from that. And about a year after that, uh, put it up on Kickstarter. And to my eternal gratitude, it was a success and funded. Oh, fantastic. Oh, yeah, I'd, I'd love to talk about what Legacy looked like in this first version. So the core of it, I mean, the core idea for Legacy was is somewhat, is mostly unchanged in many ways, is sort of how to bring the um, the sense of scale that you get from 4X strategy games like Civilization or Alpha Centauri or mm, you know, that sort yeah. of thing to a PBTA game because... I'd seen a few games that tried to do that sort of domain level play like uh, Rain or Birthright. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. it felt a bit sort of, I don't know, clunky. Like the yeah. way, to, the, the idea that the way to do broader scale things is to just put a giant spreadsheet on it. Sorry, that's more <laughs> Birthright than Rain. But uh. Uh -huh. so, I mean, so basically, initially, Legacy was a couple of family playbooks and uh, four character playbooks that were basically just sort of almost reskin dungeon world ones. You know, there was a, uh, the seeker who ended up, who was a bit like um, a mage really um, using old technology, the sentinel who was a paladin type, the hunter who was a warrior type and the elder who was a, well, leader type. But I expanded from those, made mm -hmm. them more integrated to the family side of things. Mm-hmm. And added a bunch more playlist books in there to round it out. But I think the core, the core idea of Legacy, which was that you have this family playbook and the character playbook and you shift between them, and that the family playbook is pretty, um, what's the word? It's pretty simple, and your family strengths aren't defined by this itemized tally of everything, but a few particular surpluses that they have and needs they have, so you can glance at the character sheet and say, mm. "This is what I'm good at. This is what I'm bad at." I think that was really helpful. Yeah. Oh, cool. So I, yeah, I don't think I realized that there were, there were two playbooks. So you're, but you're playing each session, you're playing as like a different member of this family, right? Yeah, that can be the case. So the general structure of legacy is mm -hmm. it happens in ages and each age is a particular moment in history where, you know, history turned on the events there. And so the family's are constant throughout characters, mm. the, General assumption is that you'll play a character through the entirety of an age unless they die or retire, which mm -hmm. can happen. But um, sure. yeah, so the nice thing about that is that while the character, the family is pretty constant, the character each age provides a very different lens to view the family from. So say mm -hmm. you're playing the family like, I don't know, the Twilight Masquerade, who are uh, a circus that travels from place to place uh, trying to bring <laughs> culture or tricks or what have you. So it's quite easy to see why what an envoy from them might look like, all sort of diplomatic and just uh, tricking their way into courts and performing all that sort of thing. 
But what does a scavenger from them look like or a um, an elder with responsibility over the circus or a survivor who's joined the circus after experiencing some sort of big trauma in their past? And I, I really love that. I mean, it's just the combination. But then also for a given session, it might be that what we're looking at this session is how, I don't know, uh, Tessa's survivor goes out into the wasteland to try and find the per- people who killed her family. And that's not really something that the other characters and families are really into. So everyone else can generate extras from uh, her family to sort of round out their expedition. And those have like little character sheets with um, a couple of moves each. So, um, yeah, with quick characters, each of them gets one thing from their family. So I know from the Mm -hmm. circus, it might be that you're particularly uh, beautiful. And when you dance, everyone must pay attention to you or that you always have a knife hidden on you or something. They get something from the role they're playing in the expedition. So are they an agent or a rebel or a leader of the expedition? And something that happens when they die. Because mm. that's okay. Cool. Yeah, no, that is that's very cool. Um, I've I've played some games that try to do that, like to 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 give you a legacy, mm. more or less. When your characters die, do they pass something on to the next character that you play? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Oh. So each character cool. has. Um, two things that happen when they die first one is playbook specific um so maybe the elder appoints their successor or the hunter takes down whatever it is that killed them or the sentinel doesn't actually die until everyone else is safe that sort of thing but the second part is that you get to pick one of your possessions and one of the moves that you have as character uh to designate as a relic and that gets passed back to your family. And from then on, when anyone in your family holds that item, they can use that power. Oh, cool. Yeah. And we have um, particular moves for if, say, someone dies out there in the wasteland and someone else comes back to their family with their relic and passes it back to them and gives them a eulogy and tells them how, tells the family how this person dies. And so that's something that's <laughs> mechanized, well, something that is important in the system and given that weight of systemic importance oh man i like that a lot you mentioned with this first version of legacy that you open it up for for like playtesting like a beta playtesting that's just out to whoever wanted to yeah play to- how, did, how did that work getting like feedback from them from games that you weren't actually witnessing like what's that like oh, it's crucial i think so i actually put it up on uh pay what you want on drive through rpg because mm-hmm. i thought well this is uh, polished enough that I wouldn't would be happy with someone paying me like a pound or two for, but people should be able to get it for free. Um, mm-hmm. And from that, I mean, it got like a few hundred downloads, but it I also got a dozen or so reports back from that, which was really great because oh nice hmm? uh, that that's nice that's that's good for like a couple hundred downloads. I feel like yeah, yeah. even just a dozen is a good return. Cool, definitely. And um, I think what the most useful thing was from that is. A, people were people looking at it and saying, this is a cool concept that I would be interested in doing. And B, here's what you didn't realize you needed to explain. Ooh. Yeah. Cause yeah. when I'm running the game, obviously it's, it's in my head. I can sort of mm-hmm. put it out there and I'm not always, you know, you, when you're running a game, you're not always aware of everything that you're doing or how important all those bits are. And similarly, when you sit down to write a text, you know, you're not, 100% aware of that you've got everything down, all your assumptions, 
about the way things should be. So people playing it absolutely blind and coming back to you and saying, so I don't quite get how this works or I don't get mm -hmm. um, what I was meant to do in this situation or this reads like it's encouraged to do, encouraging me to do why is that what's needed. So yeah, it's absolutely invaluable. And I think actually that was probably one of the biggest problems with the first edition of Legacy is I didn't do enough of that, of the blind playtesting, because, mm. you know, I still got all the way up to the time I launched uh, second edition, I got people telling me, you know, that they just couldn't get on with the first edition because they just didn't know what how to make it work, oh. which was sad. Oh, wow. But that's why, you, that's why you make new editions. Exactly. Did they come to you with anything that really surprised you? Hmm. I think what was really interesting was um, the different worlds that people had built with it. Like, mm -hmm. you know, the, people were coming back and saying there were, um, you know, they had made ones where there were no people there whatsoever and everyone was some sort of uplifted animal or they they ran something cool. set on a drifting spaceship and it didn't really have the rules that they needed to support that, but they thought that was a really cool concept <laughs> then. Actually, what really surprised me... Yeah was when I got an email from a guy in uh, Brazil uh, saying that he had mm -hmm. uh, essentially written eight new playbooks for the game and the majority <laughs> of a new supplement for it, and would you, he mind if I worked with him to publish it? Oh, wow. Yeah, so I did, and he, that guy, um, Douglas Santana Mota, is now my co-author on Legacy and hey. is helping me manage the next few books in the line because... Yeah, that, that, well, that was very surprising. But his whole idea was, um, adjusting legacy so that you could play the normal monsters, what would normally be the monsters of the wasteland. So mm -hmm. the mutant horde or the, um, hegemonizing swarm of robots or the deep fishmen or that sort of thing. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Cool. And you know, because part of how the game has evolved as I've built onto it again in over editions is it's turned into something about evolution in some ways and how all sorts of weird things could become possible mm -hmm. after the world has changed. And are you going to stay true to the old dogma of how things meant to be, or are you going to grow and adapt and say, maybe these people can be part of our community now, or how's, yeah. how's our way of being people need to change to fit into this world? And so adding that alien element into there really helps bring those questions to the fore. Oh, for sure. How much, uh, especially in this first version of Legacy, how much of the world is prescribed through the, the book, like the lore of things? So there's a little bit of a implied setting, which is okay. that there was a world that was also all full of um, wondrous technology. Uh, then it mm -hmm. broke and in breaking broke reality. but outside of those things i mean so sometimes you know you have a post-apocalypse where it's just the modern day that fell something like uh the road for example mm -hmm. but um it's more for a game where legacy more implies a setting where you might sort of dig into the dust dust and bring up a ray gun or a device that inverts magnetism in an area or or that's mm -hmm. sort of some weird bio creature that absorbs your arm <laughs> but one of the things that we really I think improved as we brought in to the new edition is putting that explicitly into players' hands, the world building. So yeah. in the new edition, every um, when you're building your families, your first choice you make uh, is what sort of stats they have. 
So whether they're good at uh, diplomacy, force, or uh, slight. And what those do, each of those choices that your playbook has also comes with a little fiction rider about what that means about the world before or the apocalypse or the current situation. So, for example, the uh, family that are all about um, being robots, the synthetic hive, if they have a, if they pick a stat line that's very much about um, being able to seize control of things and be very martial, that implies that there's a strong amount of the old world's power infrastructure still in place that they can in- exploit. Or, um, hmm. for example, the cultivators of new flesh, who are all about um, growing life. Yeah. Oh, wow. If they pick a stat line that's all about uh, being stealthy and hiding and subtle, that then says that the world is an entirely alien ecosystem that the people had to adapt to. And so you all sort of go around the table picking these things and adding little truths to the world, which means that like no group okay. has a diff- has the same setting. And I really like it. Yeah. Oh, that's very fun. So how did you know that it was time to work on a second edition? Yeah. So I think it was it was probably the case that well, you know, you never release a game and you're happy with it, I find. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Very fair. There's always something that niggles at you. Mm-hmm. But and that's one thing, but for this we'd actually we'd got to the point of um the new playbooks that we were developing, the new versions of um, you know, things like the Stranded Starfarers or the Synthetic Hive or whatever, mm-hmm. um, there was rules tech that we wanted to use for those, new ways of doing things. Like, for example, the fact that they have a third stat that's about being subtle and stealthy and espionage is not something that the core book families had. Mm. And we had the situation where, like, we really want to bring this in. It would be better if we brought it in. Um, but are we going to do some sort of patch job where we issue like errata for the old book? Um, mm. And then there were things like the first book was, you know, it wasn't made with um, the best of uh, art quality, for example. Um, there was a lot of um, just grabbing whatever I could get for cheap. Sure. Um, there were things like, um, so I said how a lot of people couldn't work out how to play the game. And <laughs> well, I, I'd kept having to write, you know, big essays in our G plus community about how to resolve uh, combat or mm. what it looks like when you shift from family to character play or all okay. that sort of thing. And, you know, this point I was looking at these and thinking I could just publish this, um, mm-hmm. these essays or whatever. And I was, you know, considering putting together a um, playbook, a, you know, another supplement, which is just sort of revising all the things. And that's, the sort of position I was at about a year ago. And then at I was um, selling games at an expo in Birmingham, and I ran into um, Chris Birch, who's head of Modifius. Mm. And, um, well, I say run into, he came to the stall to buy Legacy, uh, <laughs> and we got into cool. talking about it. And I, you know, he was talking about, like, what do you see this going? And I said, well, we have this book and all that sort of thing. And he suggested that, you know, I actually make a properly revised edition and maybe talk to them about helping publish it. So oh, nice. that was uh, how I got started on the path to the second edition. Oh, cool. Yeah, sometimes it helps having an outside perspective, you know, just say, hey, it's time to do this thing. Yeah. Excellent. 
so it's it sounds like the second version has uh, updated a lot of parts of this game. Mm. Uh, there's there's more playbooks, right? More families, more more information. Yeah, definitely. We've added um, five new characters, um, four new families. Mm. Well, I say new. What they actually are is updating. So they're the playbooks that uh, Douglas sent to me for um, that supplement. But mm-hmm. then we're bringing them more in, integrating them more into the wider set wider set of playbooks and okay. upgrading all the other playbooks to meet those that standard sort of thing oh cool we're also adding a bunch of uh well one big thing that was wasn't in core legacy was wonders which we're oh. really working on here which are um essentially huge projects that uh your family has to work on over months or years or generations oh okay and you gradually sort of tick requirements on them over time until you're finally done and you launch them and that essentially uses a modified version of our mechanic for how the world changes between generations mm-hmm. um so each wonder has its own specific table of the different things that can happen when it launches if the good things that can happen and the bad things that happen can happen and Ooh. those are really cool at driving play because you know Normally, you know, between generations, you might, I don't know, go to war with somebody and be raided by someone else or forge great trade deals mm-hmm. or uh, have a huge amount of intermarriages with another family so you get some of their tricks or whatever. But, like, mm-hmm. say you've built a capital. So there is now a, cap- a huge city on the map. And that's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Or you um, conduct a revolution and completely overthrow whatever oppressive power is. Carrying that, and these are huge sort of game-changing things, which is you know the name of the game, really. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I want to hear some more about, I guess, how a player manages that sort of thing—a uh, family and then a character, and like shifting between the two. Like, how does a how does a game play? So the way it generally works is, your we try not to mix the two levels much. Like mm, okay. generally, when you're at a family scale, it doesn't really matter what your character can do. And vice versa. There are, there are some abilities that tweak those. Okay. So when you're at the family scale, it's all about, you know, I send my agents to do this or we try and do Y. And I mean, mm-hmm. it all works in the standard apocalypse world dynamic of a conversation. But there's just this general sort of feeling that you'll all be narrating actions that will take weeks or months. And okay. then at any point, but especially after uh, someone has made a move, and they either want to, you know, try and work off some of the awful things that are happening as a result of that move failing, or they want to capitalize on that momentum. They could say, all right, I want to zoom in here. And then there's a procedure that you can follow for saying, you know, okay, so what character is there to in the immediate aftermath? Who's Who else is with them? Are any of the other players' characters with them? Or do they then want to play extras instead? What's the scene? What's happening? Et cetera, et cetera. And then you flow right in and start playing. And then... Once that is been dealt with, you can zoom back out again, um, at which point people who didn't have an active role in that type of thing, maybe they were playing bit players or what have you, uh, get to say what the character was up to during that time elsewhere on the map. Oh, cool. So it's very much a sort of phased structure. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. like how in, um, I don't know, in uh, Blades in the Dark, you can have the sort of crew time where you're just having open downtime and saying, okay, this is what we're doing as a crew conducting actions over here or acquiring an asset and then let's go into the missions 
And so you sort of, mm-hmm. except it's a bit more fluid than that. You can sort of zoom in and zoom out as the gameplay desires. But generally, yeah, that was another big sort of point of feedback we had is sometimes it can feel a bit overwhelming when you have all these sheets of paper in front of you. So we you know, sure. tried to make sure that people knew that they could just focus on one particular thing at a time. We also mm-hmm. great quite greatly simplified characters down to help with that, to reduce the mental load. Oh, okay. So they've got like more streamlined abilities. Yeah, it's more streamlined things about how you create them, how much of their own craft that they have as opposed to inherited from the family, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So it used to be that each family, each character, sorry, had their own list of gear that they can pick from and their own sort of uh, things that they could say about the world when you zoom in on them. These days, that mm-hmm. all that gear comes from the family, which, with a little modifier from the character. And the main okay. thing you actually track with uh, characters is what role they play in the family, which helps give oh. you a bit of grounding. You yeah. can say, okay, my survivor is a leader of the family, or my hunter is an agent, mm-hmm. and that gives you a little sort of fiction thing to say about the world, and it's nice and simple. Nice. Uh, I feel like with a lot of Powered by the Apocalypse games, the playbooks, once a character chooses, say, like the witch in, in Monster Hearts, you know, nobody mm-hmm. else is that. Does that, does the saying, oh, I'm going to work on my character who is the leader right now, does that prevent other people from also dealing with their family character who may be the leader? Or is that something that could be an interesting scene? Like if, if a lot of, if half your table is dealing with their yeah. leaders with each other, you know, that could be something. How does that how does that play out? Yeah, so each play each character can be can take a different role in the family and it's perfectly plausible to have a game where all of you are the leaders of your different families. In many mm-hmm. ways that's sort of the easiest one to get started because you can say, you know, well, you're all in conference together. Mm-hmm. Each of you has having your own way become uh the person in charge of your family uh through very different means and play that out. But the thing about um the family roles is you are very much expected to be moving between those over a character's lifespan. That's actually how um, advancement works in this system. So every time that you switch to a new role, you get to pick, you know, uh, an increase to a stat or a new move for your character. Very cool. And then once you've done four of those, so maybe you've been a leader, then an outsider, then a rebel, then an agent, uh, Mm. at that point you can retire your character off and, you know, make a big sort of statement about how the world changes, but then their time in the story is gone. Yeah. Oh, that's very cool. Yeah. And I don't know if you would be able to answer this. I'm I'm just thinking out loud now. Players who play in Legacy for a, for a long time, you know, and are able to play multiple characters. What do you do? You see anything with um like player attachment to their characters? You know, I know in in other games you're playing the same person for a long time, and mm. you don't want anything bad to happen to them, and they are your precious baby. <laughs> but Legacy is is built to you know let them grow and change and die. So does do you see that changing attitudes at all? Or are, are players like more willing to let their characters die? Maybe I don't know. Yeah, I think people are more willing to draw a line under a character and say, "Okay, that's what I was trying to do with this character." And mm-hmm. I go because I mean, like, so as I say, one of the things I had growing up as a role player was uh, a big focus on LARPs. And when you go to these huge festival LARPs, you know, where there's a thousand players on the field and you're not going to be changing the world, mm-hmm. it's really important to define a win condition for yourself. 
that, you know, this is what I wanted this character to do. And if they can do that, then I'm happy if they die or I can go and play someone else or that sort of thing. And I sort of tried to foster a bit of that attitude, you know, like when you're making a character, you're saying, this is the sort of story I want to play. Yeah. And at a certain point you can say, okay, I'm done with that story. I can move forward. Now there are options for if you want to keep character continuity. Uh, for one thing, it's never enforced that your character dies between ages of the game. For one thing, you you could be playing a game where it's more like, I don't know, The Walking Dead, where ages <laughs> are just uh, sort of season breaks. And you oh, could say, okay. all right, last season, Rick was a hunter and... This season, he's an elder because he's more about managing the group. And next season, he's going to be a scavenger because he's all desperate and just trying to make ends meet. And you can play out an even more sort of long-form character like that. Or, you know, in the more standard post-apocalyptic vein, you could say, all right, I'm going to be playing a machine or a remnant of the full, you know, one of these sort of inhuman, possibly immortal characters that is just going to keep repeating from age to age. So. You know, we have the tools, but generally what I see is that players form that sort of attachment to their family, yeah. and to the sorts of people their family is, and enjoy seeing the, how that narrative grows and changes over time. Very cool. Yeah, I, I feel like the the more I'm learning about how the game plays, the more it sounds like families definitely are the are the main focus for folks, and like they're the stand-in for you know, like your single character. Mm. And they they all sound very different too. The couple that we've gone over. <laughs> um, <laughs> so uh, playtesting with the second edition. Yes. What has that been like? Uh, so I've been trying to rectify my mis some of my mistakes by first edition by trying to really get it out there. And part of that was just sort of putting together a quick start for the game, mm -hmm. which says, here's an initial situation. Here's some mostly pre-gen family character pairs that you can fill in a bit of extra detail for. Here are the core rules. Go and play. And Excellent. that worked really, really well. I I've seen a huge amount of, um, well, not a huge amount, a lot of people uh, taking the quick start mm -hmm. and just running through it in a single session and seeing how it works for them. I've also been, between first edition coming out and second edition entering playtesting, I got a lot more involved in uh, playing online. So for Hangouts or Roll20 or whatever. And that has really, really helped in getting playtest groups together. Oh, because sure. it creates something I can record and then yeah. watch back. Or, you know, more mercenarily, uh, that I can use as a promotional tool later. <laughs> but, um, but mainly, I think it's been a matter of I have a lot more people um, to playtest the game with than I did when first edition was being playtested. And um, I think I'm a bit more plugged in about how to better promote the game. And so that's been really useful in sort of getting the good feedback back. And yeah, I think I'm really happy with the game. One thing, actually, one thing I did, one way of um, playtesting that uh, wasn't quite mm -hmm. aware of before is uh, writing examples of play, I would say, is a form of playtesting. Oh, how so? Well, when you sit down with a keyboard and the pdf and say okay i'm going to write through a worked example of combat just to show people how that works i found that every time i write one of those or even just let's see how this move works in context and um i normally just write those by starting with a situation and then seeing what actions i would take of that content and then rolling dice and seeing what happens next i find those just 
almost always show me something interesting that I hadn't quite seen before. And certainly for all those designers out there who haven't, who don't necessarily have the resources to get together an in-person play test for everything and look through it, really, scru really scrutinize stuff. I would really recommend just writing as many examples of gameplay as you can and try, try to get, approach them honestly, like from both the player and the GM side, do what you would do at the table rather than say, okay, I need this. I think this mechanic does this. Therefore, I'm going to write a situation where it does this. Just, you know, play it and see what happens. Yeah, I, I think the the key there is like you're actually playing it out with yourself instead of just writing something that would be the most convenient thing to write. Yeah. Um, introducing that that random element is, oh, cool. I had never thought about that. Now that you have, you're able to do all the, able to have seen all the playtesting with the first version and the second version and gotten feedback in different ways, do you feel like the player experience has changed at all or, or gotten truer to your intent or anything like that? Definitely truer to my intent, for sure. Mm. So I felt from the, from pretty early on that the core experience was where I wanted to be. Like people were coming out of the playtests enthusing about the, world that they had built or their mm. characters but it was the um moment to moment ease of use of the game that really needed polishing like people stumbling about what move triggers when or about um finding something on their playbooks and all that sort of thing i think there was a lot of um easing of the gameplay a lot of um streamlining needed to be done and i think i think that's worked well oh good <laughs> That that that's important. I mean, it can be a great game, but if nobody can play it, then it's not very fun. <laughs> I, I think that character sheets don't get a lot of love. These for a lot of games, they're sort oh. of something that you know we they're just we put all the stats you need to track in a spreadsheet sort of table format and chuck them in the back of the book. But mm -hmm. they're the main user interface that players have to play your game. And if yeah. you know they're confusing or if they don't have anything, I mean, like, so I got started. Uh, GMing with Exalted was my first game I actually GMed. Oh, oh my god! And that's that. That's not an easy game to run. No, <laughs> it's not even an easy game to play because you know, like no. I remember, you know, my players would have this um, have multiple sheets just writing down all the powers that they had, mm -hmm. but they could they only had room there for your for the name of the power, like and maybe mm -hmm. how much it costs to activate, and so you have to constantly be flipping through the book and finding things. So you know, I try and make games where if everything's working all right, you have in front of you everything you need to play. And that's maybe a couple of sheets of paper. And yeah. I, I mean, that's partly because I can't keep that all that crunch, all those numbers in my head, all those different Aww. powers. But mostly just like if you boil it down to what's needed to play, what's fun to play. And if you look and see when, a when someone's actually playing your game, what's the actual limit of the stuff that they can bear in mind at any one time mm -hmm. towards that? I mean, it's one of the ways I think Monster Hearts has really, um, one of the reasons it has got so popular and so great is because those playbooks are so simple in many ways. You know, you've got your evocative art, you've got your, um, character thing that immediately points you at the other players in semi-antagonistic relationships. You've got, mm -hmm. um, you've got five or so moves that you pick a couple of and you've got your dark itself and that's, a really, really small cognitive load, which enables you to, yeah. you know, immediately know what you can do and just flow from there. And I mean, Legacy is a lot crunchier, you know, it, it's got like double the playbooks and the things that you're managing mm -hmm. is a lot more than that. But I've been, I, I try to aim for that flow. 
Yeah, I, I think that's a good goal. And, you know, it sounds like even with maybe twice the playbooks, that's still, you're not focusing on everything all at once. Mm. So, so that helps. How, um, how long would a campaign of Legacy be? Or could you just kind of play it forever? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think you could. But there's no defined limit to it. Um, yeah. And it's designed to be somewhat episodic, you know? Um, so in my experience, I normally have each age be maybe two to five sessions mm-hmm. of like, you know, three hours each or whatever. I think that's a good amount of time to set up a situation, work it through, and it has enough consequences that when you move forward, it's good. Yeah. But um, as to how many of those ages you can play, I mean, there's no limit, I think, but until you get bored, which is, I'll be honest, how most <laughs> campaigns end is you know, sure. something interesting else you want to do and go and do that. Yeah. Uh, we do have um, one of the goals for our um, next few books that we're bringing out for it is actually providing end states. So mm. ways in which you can move the world from post-apocalyptic to just normal, you know, yeah. move it, <laughs> find some stability. Or maybe ways in which um, you can introduce some sort of overwhelming apocalyptic threat that could wipe the slate completely clean and leave no survivors this time and what do the characters do against that uh, but essentially ways of providing finales to a campaign oh okay and those are are those in the um uh the other setting books and in... i know so um this is the engine of life is the one about uh positive things nice things happening and end game is the one about bad things <laughs> happening but these are both for the core legacy experience and will come with like a half dozen oh, playbooks cool. each and that sort of thing. Uh, do you want to talk about the other? Oh, certainly. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to hear about some of these. I was looking through the, the list and like uh, the, the generation ship, that, that stuff is my jam. I love yeah. all sci-fi that has to do with the generation ship. So yeah. So that way. yeah, before I was, I started launching the Kickstarter, I thought, I mean, what am I going to be doing for stretch goals? And a lot of what I wanted to do with Legacy, I'd already done. Um, apart from like, you know, cosmetic upgrades for the book. But mm-hmm. one thing that's I really wanted to do is take this episodic generational style of play and move it to other settings and maybe get some more authors in that you know give them a shot at, you know, writing yeah. books. So let's see. The first one I got was uh Generation Ship, and that's from a guy who was one of the original players who sent me feedback for uh, Legacy One, so a longtime fan. Cool. Um, and yeah, so Generation Ship is uh, you are all people who were frozen on a uh, spaceship to travel from Earth, probably to an eventual colony, but something's gone wrong, and a bunch of you <laughs> unfroze halfway through, mm-hmm. and it's a you know few generations after the first unfreezing happened, and now you play the different different factions trying to keep this uh, spaceship running, trying to find the systems that are there to help you find a colony and repair them and bring them up to speed to fend off the various threats that are growing in the bowels of the spaceship, like mm-hmm. aliens or mutants or what have you. Uh, keep Excellent. yourself alive and eventually find a colony that you can settle on. Awesome. So that... Um, did some rewriting of the core legacy rules to um, be about you being inside a ship rather than in a wasteland. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. Instead of wonders, it has the ship systems that you're trying to reactivate, things like the helm or the uh, navigation arrays or the mm-hmm. dropships or that sort of thing. And once those have been brought online, that flam- that family now has that resource that they can use to you know help their own efforts as go th- through things. But generally, that's oh, cool. that's quite close to core legacy. I mean, obviously, also there are like a half dozen new family playbooks and a half dozen character playbooks to that are specifically tuned to fit that. So you can do mm-hmm. things like play the a uh, digital ghost haunting the systems of the ship, manifesting. <laughs> Or the people who revere the people stealing cryo and sort of worship them Ooh. as holy and, and pure and untainted by this current ship. So that's real fun. So that's one that doesn't really take change the rules of legacy much, but put it in a different setting. Uh, similarly, I um, had Worldfall by uh, Catherine Cross, and that is well, strangely enough, about a colony that has been founded on a planet. So it is neatly set up so that you could go from <laughs> generation to it. Oh, cool. So um, I got the pitches entirely sort of independently of each other. That yeah. was just a lucky coincidence. But that's very much more about political sci-fi. Mm-hmm. It's about that you found founded this new colony, but what sort of society are you going to build? So for there, the um, factions that you're playing are less, you know, families or whatever, but more political movements. So it's like, you know, the anarchist artists or the officers who were in charge of the spaceship and now think they should still be in charge or the mm-hmm. people who have formed a weird sort of reverential relationship with the alien fauna of the new planet. So that one was very uh, Alpha Centauri inspired. That's so good. Yeah. And then you've got ones which take things in much weirder directions. So um, a friend of mine that I met at the University of Playing Society uh, pitched Primal Pathways, which was... Uh, Inspired by Spore, the um, older, fr- mm. um, what was those game? Who made it? The yeah. Will Wright game. Mm-hmm. So for this, you play a species that has been chosen by some otherworldly force of evolution and essentially uplifted from basic animals into something more intelligent. Yeah. And you serve this force of evolution, which might be the devourer or the hunter or the um, otherworldly, which is, you know, dedicated <laughs> to moving you more towards this ethereal existence. And you um, grow and evolve your species over generations. Very cool. Yeah, I, I saw that one first and I immediately was like, that's kind of like Spore. So I'm glad I was not yeah, off base yeah. there. Very good. <laughs> one thing I love about that is that our artist, um, a guy called Juan Oshoa, <laughs> does these really remarkably organic looking aliens. They're amazingly grotesque mm-hmm. and I love them. Yeah, there's a couple on the on the cover there that look so good yeah let me think then there is godsend yes i can't uh forget godsend Mm -hmm. so godsend is a game about the end of times specifically the end of times in a sort of classical greek sort of deities watching the coming apocalypse or norse ragnarok sort of sense okay so in that one you play uh gods and their avatars But in a way that different from normal legacy, you're playing the avatar of another player's god. Oh. Yeah. So it's set up to be more antagonistic in some <laughs> ways, or more like sort of master servant relationship. And it's really cool because um obviously gods can't interact physically in the world, so avatars have some strength there. But gods can uh, you know, read destiny and see what is going to be happening, what uh what the tides of fate are going towards, yeah. whereas avatars are able to, you know, face down armies and 
uh, fight monsters and heal populations and all that sort of thing. Mm. But the um, biggest departure for it, and I was quite surprised when uh, the author said he was going down the street, but it's worked pretty well, I think, is it's entirely diceless. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So Undying, the vampire PBTA, was a big inspiration for it, apparently. Oh. And I know that um, Dream Askew is also diceless, but mm, it's right. a really nice implementation of it where basically just every move has a certain amount of good things that you can pick from to happen based on your stat and a certain amount of bad things that you can choose not to happen based on another stat. Ooh. So you're constantly making choices that move the fiction forwards which is great, which fulfills the main role of the dice for me, I think, which is to right. give you opportunities to introduce bad things. Mm-hmm. But put that in the player's hands because, well, the, as it says, it's quite appropriate for a game about deities and demigods that it's not up to fate. Everything right. bad that happens is because you chose for it to happen. Yeah. Uh, that's really that's good. Really and I also yeah. feel like as, as players, when we play PBTA games, we're like rooting for the bad things to happen anyway. So. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Oh, and there's... um. One more setting, which mm-hmm. was the one I wrote. I got in on the action and thought, oh, I have some other ideas. So I went with uh, Rhapsody of Blood, which mm. is a Castlevania Bloodborne sort of inspired game. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, where um, essentially every few generations, the blood moon rises and an evil castle from outside of reality invades the world and tries to corrupt it. And you are the heroes from various bloodlines who have learned how to fight it back who enter the castle and face down its evil regent and all that sort of thing. And oh, so it yeah. was It was mainly, I well, A, I love that sort of uh, action gothic horror sort of mm-hmm. setting, um, but also I wanted to see how to do boss fights in PBTA. Ooh, yeah. Because, you know, we, in D&D there's a sort of, that's sort of almost solved problem of how to make a good boss. You know, you give it a lot of HP, you give it attack, multiple attacks, you give it yeah. in the initiative and all sorts of interesting things in the layer, that sort of thing. Um, so I wanted to work out how to model that in PBTA. So what I went with was that each huge enemy has a bunch of qualities that are essentially packages of abilities that it has. So for a giant bat creature, it might have, mm-hmm. you know, a deafening screech, and poison fangs and wings that let it fly and knock people back. Ooh. So those are its three stats, effectively. That is three mm-hmm. uh, traits that it'll have on its character sheet, on its monster sheet. And the players, then, the mm-hmm. dynamic is all about luring it into position or examining it or knocking it back a bit with your weapons until it gives you an opening that you can use to try and take out one of those things, one of those Ooh. qualities. And it creates a really nice sort of boss fight where the players are trying to sort of bait the creature into doing all sorts of whatever sort of thing that they're good at uh it however is just going absolutely rampaging on them and smacking them about left right and center and eventually they bring it down and kill it or you know die one of the two yeah yeah (laughs) oh my gosh i want to play all of them (laughs) oh every time you went through one i was like oh yeah i want to do that one next it's like no i can't decide so thank you for that all right what else should we know about Legacy? Hmm. So the second edition was kickstarted yes. last summer. Indeed. Okay. So that's, is it available? Uh, it will be on sale. I am hoping for next week. Oh. So I am actually uh, driving down to London tomorrow 
to the warehouse to uh, sign all the books in the warehouse, and then they'll start mailing out to Kickstarter backers. Oh, excellent. And we're actually putting it on sale at an expo this uh, weekend. So it will be out imminently. It's out on PDF already. but um, Good. And the uh, alternate settings are also hopefully coming out this week. Oh, nice. Good. Hopefully, by the time this is out, yeah. we'll have links that people can go look at. Uh, Definitely. But yeah, uh, if there's anything else we should we should touch on. I would say that I am super, really excited to see the sort of things that people make with the game, the worlds mm-hmm. that they create, just stories of their set of their sessions, or you know, even um, playbooks that they have written. Um, I am. I'm very interested in helping people publish their own games, you know, because yeah. I got started basically because I was in a forum where people were happy to help me along. And, you know, that's part of this whole project is I think that every time someone comes along and says, I have this cool idea, what do you think? And, you know, I've looked at it and it's been great. And that's strengthened everything. I mean, like the whole reason we have a second edition is someone reached out to me and said, I think this could be cool. And then the whole reason that we've got all those extra settings is people reached out to me and said, this could be cool. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. I love that. Well, where can folks reach out to you and tell you about cool things on the internet? So I am on Twitter at, uh, at UFO Press RPGs or uh, ufopress.co.uk. We also have a Legacy of Life Among the Ruins community on Google Plus and a Discord server that um, <laughs> is linked on the website where, you know, we have all sorts of conversations about uh, games and such. Excellent. I have a Patreon at patreon.com UFO Press, but that is mainly used for writing uh, one-page RPGs and that sort of thing and just putting one of those up a month. Oh, good. Things that I use to just sort of keep my game design hand in when I'm otherwise busy just doing layout for games and that sort of thing. Awesome. Then we'll have all of those links in the show notes as per awesome. usual. Yeah, thank you so much, James. This this has been really fun. I'm really excited to play this. <laughs> awesome. Uh, I'm really excited to see what happens when books start going out and landing in people's hands and the stories they tell and just what people do with it. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I want to learn how to use G+, so I can creep on some of these <laughs> stories. <laughs> Huge thanks again to James for being on, and definitely check out all the flavors of Legacy, links to which you can find in the show notes. Please check out the OneShot Network Patreon as well, and I hope to see you at a convention very soon. That's it for this week, heroes. You can find Modifier mostly on Twitter at Modifier Podcast. We also have a Tumblr, Facebook, and G+, with varying levels of upkeep success, all under the same Modifier Podcast name. You can email me directly with questions, comments, or show suggestions at modifierpodcast at gmail.com. Modifier is a proud member of the OneShot Podcast Network, an incredible family of RPG podcasts that include shows like OneShot, Campaign, Backstory, Adventure, Neoscum, System Mastery, and Talking Tabletop. OneShot is an actual play podcast where host James D'Amato leads a rotating cast of improvisers, game designers, and other notable nerds through a variety of role-playing games. Every month, OneShot plays a new game with a new cast of players. Find out more about all these shows at OneShotPodcast.com. Modifier's theme music was created by my favorite Bothan, Cat Greenfield, whose myriad talents are on display at CatGreenfield.com. Join me again in two weeks for another episode of Modifier. See you then.